Welcome in to the OMR Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Peterson, Steve Saraceno, founder and CEO of US-based BC Fund Activant Capital, will be joining me shortly. And I have to say, well, first, I should say, we love all of our guests here on the pod, every single one. But I also have to say that the conversation I had with Steve ranks up there with the most informative that I have ever had, regardless of the context, format, or topic. I don't know, maybe it's the pro-Italy bias, pro-European champion Italia bias, I might add. He's got Italian heritage, as his name indicates, while my gorgeous wife is from the tip of the boot. That being said, what I do know is that the candor with which he spoke about the VC trade was not only insightful, but I feel like I could go out right now and start my own fund. Today. What did we talk about exactly? Well, we discussed differences in and similarities between the VC markets stateside and in Europe. Activant just opened up a brand new office in Berlin. Just wait till you hear Steve rave about Berlin. Pun intended. We also spoke about Activant's recent $170 million investment in grocery and retail delivery startup Joker. How that market figures to evolve moving forward. And about the things Generation Xers, Gen Xers, as it were, and Gen Zers, Zoomers, whatever you want to call these people, tend to prioritize. Mini spoiler, Gen Xers want things, Zoomers want time. Of course, we also got into the nuts and bolts of the Activant portfolio, discussing investment strategies and models. But arguably, the single most eye-opening thing was what Steve said about the things he looks for in a company that Activant invests in, and why 66% of it is out of his control. 66%. Incredible. How many bets would you make if you were at a near two-thirds disadvantage? I'm not going to steal Steve's limelight here. You just need to hear it straight from him, which you can do right now in the OMR podcast with Activant Capital CEO and founder, Steve Saraceno. Enjoy. Joining me right now is Activant Capital CEO and founder, Steve Saraceno. Steve, welcome to the Omar Podcast. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to have you on. I'm looking forward to talking to you about the VC sector stateside and in Europe, uh, as well as some of the more interesting companies in the Activant portfolio. Um, now, we're recording remotely. I'm at Omar HQ in Hamburg. You're in Greenwich, Connecticut, correct? Correct. All right. Now, I bring that up because we almost had the first ever face-to-face -face recording in the history of this podcast because uh, you were in Berlin last week. I, unfortunately, was on vacation, but you were not on vacation in Berlin, now were you? We weren't. We were. Um, so a few of us from the team came out to get our office opened and settled in Berlin, which is located um, offices in Mitte. Okay. And... Um, I spent some time with uh, Max Mayer, who's leading the effort there, known him a long time, former entrepreneur, worked at Global Founders Capital. And uh, we also met with a number of funds there. I will tell you, Scott, I was in San Francisco in 1999, and the buzz in Berlin around tech felt very similar. You know, the, an office opening for us is, this is a 40, 50 plus year bet, right? As investors, our job is to predict the future, which is almost impossible, but you know, our bet is that Berlin you know, will become again the capital of Europe, particularly when it comes to tech. Uh, but that energy was incredible. Um, ate a lot of your great restaurants there. <laughs> um, the Grill Royal was one of my favorites. Uh, but it was a really good visit. And um, it, was, it was more exciting because Germany had kind of opened that week too. So people right. were excited to get out and meet. And it just the energy was incredible. 
So it's, it's your first, uh, uh, Activan's first offices outside of uh, home base in Greenwich, right? Uh, in Correct. Berlin. And you were founded in 2015. Um, you've raised a total of four funds uh, so far, and you manage assets totaling of around around 1.5 billion, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct. Um, how would you characterize um, Activan's approach, or what kind of makes you attractive or stand out as a VC fund to potential investors or or startups? Yeah, so we you know we come we invest at that inflection phase of a company's life cycle and. If you think about, and I'm going to, you know, these letters don't mean a lot anymore, but when you think about like a seed, it's really a seed investment. It's like, does a product work? Um, the A is, is there product market fit? We, we tend to come in when it's time to scale. And what I found through my career is that's actually one of the hardest things to do as a business is scale because uh, it comes down to execution. So, you know, we're, we're, we're focused um Almost universally on what we call commerce, commerce infrastructure, and fintech, mm-hmm. and it's in, you know enabling the buy and sell of goods and services. And so, you know, as we get to know companies, we we try to get to them as early as possible, follow them, and when they're when they're ready to inflect and when they're ready to take on more capital, that's when we come in. Sometimes we come in alone. Sometimes we come in with partners. But um, the level of support we provide is very different. It, it feels more like a a, a big buyout firm investing versus a venture firm where you have partners sitting on 15 to 20 boards. We're only doing a few deals a year. We're very focused, global, um, and we're quite unique in, in that from that standpoint because um, most funds our size don't have the resource capabilities or the global reach. Okay. And the majority of the, f- uh, the firms that you've invested in so far are in the U.S., but I would assume that with the, the European office opening up, that's probably going to shift a little bit or even out. Yeah, so we, you know, we've always taken a global approach. I, I think we're seeing this more today, but a long time ago, tech, you know, good European companies would still come to the U.S. and compete, mm-hmm. and good companies in the U.S. would compete in Europe. Um, and we made a couple investments in Germany. Uh, we were one of the early investors in Hybris, which was founded by Karsten Toma out of Munich. And we backed uh, uh, Stefan Schombach, um, who st- started New Store in Berlin, who, of course, started Demandware and Intershop before that. Mm-hmm. So we're familiar with the European landscape. Um, spent a lot of time in London as well. But the um, the interesting thing about Europe, and again, like, you know, as in our role is predicting the future, if you look at Europe, they graduate about as many STEM grads as the U.S. If you include Eastern Europe, it's double. If you include Russia, it's triple. You've always mm-hmm. had the technical talent. And what's really changed is the number of um, really strong managers or VP level talent. So, for instance, if you were scaling a business, a lot of European companies 10 or 10 years ago, even five years ago, would open in the US. So, Hybris, for instance, opened in New York and Montreal to find the requisite talent. What's happened is a lot of the big US companies have opened offices. So, I, I think you probably know Amazon and Tesla are both moving to Berlin. Mm-hmm. It's much easier to find amazing. You know, VP of sales, VP marketing, VP eng, than it was 10 years ago. And, you know, couple that with the depth of venture capital, venture capital talent, venture capital dollars, you've got the making of a very exciting sort of um, um, tech world where you're going to see the growth side of the business grow much faster than the venture side. Because US dollars traditionally are about 50 50 growth to venture in Europe. 
it's been more like 65% venture. Mm -hmm. The venture market's been much larger. Um, but what we're going to see is I think that even out to 50-50, which means the growth market's going to explode. So, you know, the number of large companies that you're going to see coming out of the continent um, should double or triple just over the next five years. Germany on its own should compete with London in terms of unicorns and the continent, uh, Europe as a whole should compete with the U.S. in terms of number of unicorns. Um, so that was that was part of the calculus in our move. All right. And so what are like some of the, the underlying similarities or differences between maybe the U.S. and, and Europe? Um, you said there's a lot of potential for growth right now in Europe, in Europe just because uh, kind of, I don't know, under an under tapped uh, resource. Um, the I don't know if the the landscape is just different or how you approach deals or approach funds. Um, maybe you could share some of your insights there. Yeah, I think um, there's probably more similar similarities and differences. So from a technical mm -hmm. standpoint, a product standpoint, you've got fantastic products coming out of Europe, just like the U.S. Um, very little difference there. Uh, the management team is also very strong, very little difference. Some of the neat things, though, that Europe has that the U.S. doesn't. So the U.S. is one large market, but the European businesses tend to be built, you know, purpose-built from the ground up to scale globally. Because, they, you know, from day one, they're like, okay, you know, we're starting in Germany. We're going to own the German market, but we need to expand to other markets in Europe and then eventually the U.S. And so the infrastructure, the DNA of the business tends to be, you know, more global first than what you'll see in the U.S., U.S. companies, when they when they make the jump across either of the oceans, it, it is it's a big effort. It takes time. You have to hire. Um, it's not trivial. One of our companies, for instance, Better, just bought a uh, a company in um, in England to expand into the U.K. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I feel like a European company doing the opposite in the U.S. would probably more likely just open an office versus acquire. And so that's one of the really exciting things. And if you think about tech generally, the playing field's more level. Companies compete globally. You know, China is kind of its own thing, um, particularly on uh, on the B two B software side, um, even the B two C um, side. But you know, European companies are well suited to go global. I think also, you know, the relationship matters um, a lot in the U.S., but it also matters a lot in Europe. And you've got to have a local presence, I think, to build the right relationships with the right founders way ahead of their you know their um, their desire to raise that growth capital. And so. You know, more so than the U.S., I think you really need to be local in Europe. Um, and how uh, to that point, um, you said you have a, a couple of teams that have, that you have experience working with, a couple of players, I should say, on the team that you've have experience working with that are uh, in Berlin um, that are, I would assume, well connected, know their way around the scene, know who to talk to, and that type of thing. Um, does um, is, is the move to open up an office there indicative of a primary focus on? On Berlin for the for the near future, or are we talking maybe Actvin's looking like pan-European? Yeah, Scott. So it, it's absolutely pan-European, but our, our our view and our bet is that Berlin will be the epicenter for the continent in terms of tech and um, tech companies, tech startups, tech and in, tech investing across the board. So you know when we when we mapped the continent. You know, the two most obvious places to go are map Europe, where it was London and Berlin. And so what most of my colleagues do, frankly, because it's easy, is they plant a flag in London and then mm -hmm. use that to expand into the continent. And 
London on its own has a fantastic ecosystem, particularly in fintech. It's very strong in fintech. But the nice thing about being located on the East Coast, Scott, is it's pretty easy to get to London. Um, you know, it's like going to San Francisco, except um, you got to bring your passport. But <laughs> right. the continent's a whole different animal for us. And I believe we are the first U.S. fund to plant the flag initially on the continent versus going to to the U.K. Okay. Um, and I think more are going to follow. So I have some good friends that also run funds. Um, and when we opened the office, uh, you know, gave me a call and said, Hey, I don't think we're very far behind you. So I think you're going to see more funds, um, move to Berlin, maybe Munich, but I think on balance, Berlin's 3.6 million people. It's, it's, it's much more international. Uh, and that energy, Scott, I have felt that before. Um, and it's not in a bad way. It's not, you know, a bubble like it was in 99 in San Francisco, but the energy around tech there is palpable and exciting. And when I got there, I just knew we made the right bet um, in terms of location and of course the right team. It's also as an owner or founder of a business, it's very exciting to, to come to a new office, you know, with, with people that you're hiring um, just personally, very rewarding and very exciting. Right. Now, you mentioned um, London is the most obvious other candidate. Did the Brexit situation play into that at all? Um, the uncertainty surrounding that? Yeah, that's a that's a that's an interesting question. No, it actually it didn't. Um, it didn't because look, like coming from the U.S., it's much more complicated to get to Europe anyway. Um, yeah, so our team, if we were located in London, would have to spend a little more time in line uh, getting their passport stamped. But it's really hard to predict how Brexit will play out. Again, remember, this is a long-term bet, multi-generational bet we're making on the office. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to predict how that will play out. It's still, you know, London's got a robust tech scene. It, it's not, that's not going to go away. So it it didn't. So it wasn't, we didn't choose because we didn't like something about London. We chose because we liked a lot about Berlin and the continent. Okay. And yeah. Fair enough. Um, yeah, it's sometimes it's not, uh, it's the, the most good as opposed to the least bad. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's an investing. That's usually the best way to make a decision <laughs> is it's a positive intent. Uh, you're leaning into things you like uh -huh. and the things you're either not sure about, um, you know, you, you, you spend less time with, and it was, when you, I think that like the data is going to show it too um, over the next couple of years in terms of if you just look at the number of either successful outcomes or or unicorns, like I'm sure you know, Solana's just raised at 10 billion. When you have those kind of outcomes, it spawns other companies, right? Because you you know you have entrepreneur you have the entrepreneurs do very well, but early employees do well. They leave, they start funds, they start new companies, and it just builds on itself. And like the Bay Area's been doing this for 30, 40 years now. Um, and remember, the Bay Area in San Francisco was behind Boston for a long time. And if you're to point, pinpoint, like, why did that change? There was, um, you know, Tom Perkins from, from Kleiner Perkins um, took more of an active role as venture. Like, he was the first one to really take board seats and built the model um, and built depth there. And it surpassed Boston. And it's the global capital of, of, of tech and unicorn still, even to this day. All right. Well, now I want to talk about um, one of the more recent um, uh, investments that uh, just came out, I guess, last week. Um, and that was that you were 
part of a, a pretty, uh, an unusually large Series A round of funding, um, along with Tiger and some others, you invested around $170 million in Joker, um, which is in the, I guess, the hyper-local grocery delivery um, sector. And the Joker's only been around for about three months. Um, so it seems to, to be a quite a, a significant wager, um, especially when you think about the fact that the the grocery delivery market is incredibly competitive, uh, especially over here. Um, Gorillas is based in Berlin. Um, Flink is also very present uh, in in Germany and in Europe. They both raised over uh, about three hundred million. Um, so, what what was it that convinced you about Joker um, to 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 go in on that bet? Yeah, so um, they were very excited uh, to be a part of uh, Joker and um, and partner with Ralph and the team. It, so, stepping back. Um, if you like, why why do some investments succeed where others fail? And um, we, there's some great data actually. Bill Gross put together looking at hundreds of companies, and we we've done our own analysis that the most important aspect, if you if you look at correlation, is actually timing, and um, at like 43 to 45 percent correlation. Second most important is team and execution, at like 35 percent correlation for positive outcomes. So when you look at the delivery market, we think the timing is right. Remember, this is quick commerce, so they're delivering in 15 minutes, not you know three hours. Or you t- you slot a day in to get get things delivered, and it's it goes beyond just groceries. It's convenience store items. Um, you know, most of these um, companies will probably move into prepared food at some point. Mm-hmm. But the timing for this market, people are ready for it. This has been tried before. Like most things that are succeeding, there was Cosmo.com in San Francisco. Um, you know, Webvan, which is uh, more of an adjacency, but they both failed. Uh, you know, you didn't have the iPhone and apps and um, AWS back then, and the costs were just too heavy. But today is very different. Um, and so the timing for this is is right. And that's why you see other competitors, like you mentioned, like Grill and Flink. So we feel really good about this market, a trillion market globally. So when you, when you step down to the second most important part, which is team and execution, um, you know, again, we we met with everyone in the space. There's about eight companies that matter. They're all really good. We just absolutely love Ralph and the team at Joker. And they came from Food, um, Food Panda, which of course was acquired. The depth of that team is unbelievable. The vision and the scope of what they're trying to do, I think, is bigger than anyone we've seen. Um, and you know, we also made sure that there's a lot of deep pockets around them so that we can withstand. Not only a downturn, but the head-to-head competition that we're going to face, and mm-hmm. they did some really smart things early. So we're not, we're, although we're based in Berlin, we're not providing service in Germany um, and going head-to-head with Grills and Flank. And the German market, um, you know, outside in, when we look at it, it's it's a tougher market for the service because consumers are are very price sensitive, um, and you know, if people add like a one or two dollar delivery fee, that makes a difference. So we're we're in Eastern Europe, we're in the U.S., we're in Latin America, um, which are are really attractive markets for this. Um, so, you know, we like the vision, we like the team, we like the fact they're executing. And in three months, they've been around a little bit longer than three months. Um, we actually first saw the deck, the original deck, maybe six months ago when it was, you know, it was more of an idea. Although I know Ralph's been tinkering with this for for some time, um, but. When they started opening up warehouses, I think we're on a, you know, almost a warehouse a day pace now. 
the machine that they built to execute was incredible. So we got to actually see some data, some real data before investing, which as a growth investor obviously makes us feel really good. And then, um, you know, we all stepped into the momentum, all the investors collectively here. And uh, we're going to watch it over sort of the next six to nine months and see how they perform. And I think you'll see more announcements uh, soon about Joker, um, which is really exciting. All right. How do you see, um, what do you, uh, how do you, what the, what am I trying to say? Um, market consolidation. Like, do you see that taking place in the short term that uh, maybe there'll be a few kind of, I don't know, weed out is the wrong phrase, but that there will be maybe a handful of companies that do wet better than the others and just kind of stand up and, you know, take the market. Absolutely. Uh, good insight, Scott. So you you will see consolidation probably within the next six to 12 months with a couple players. And so what you will see, you know, e- even Joker's already acquired um, an asset. Um, the, 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 the teams that have executed in, in local geographies really well, but don't have the ability to scale beyond it, are going to be at a massive disadvantage when it comes to purchasing and logistics and just the other number of really execution-oriented things that go behind the scenes to make this work. And so I think you'll see some of the bigger guys pick up the local players and then, and that's going to happen the short term in the longer term. It's unclear if some of these companies are just going to um, beat each other to a pulp or merge or acquire. I suspect knowing the teams at a lot of these different businesses that they're actually going to beat each other to a pulp, (laughs) which is, which is fine with us. And then we'll go sweep up some of the assets later um, but that it's such a good question. You will see consolidation. And look, we saw this in a lot of markets um, that, you know, are more consumer oriented uh, over the years. But right now it's it's still a big white space. There's room for two players in each market. Three's probably not going to happen. Um, and so you'll see it consolidated down, down to two players in most of the big markets. And like those with the, the, the best team to execute and the deepest cap pockets in terms of capital are going to win. So you think that those are going to be the two biggest factors going to be resources, execution, as far as which players are going to be able to differentiate themselves and, and, and survive. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, when I say execute, execution is all about the like, customer happiness. And then the thing we saw with quick commerce, um, it's really interesting. And we saw this with Uber is that people actually, it changes the way you live your life. When you can order, you know, your breakfast and when you get out of the shower, it's just a bag sitting there at your front door. Um, it changes the way that you can do things when you're out and you need, you need certain items, you can get them in 15 minutes. And so you're not waiting around your house to cook dinner. Um, you can decide on the fly. And if you look at like the Gen Zennial uh, group, so millennial Gen Z, they tend to value time and experience over things versus like the boomers. Um, I'm X, so I fall. We fall in the middle, but, uh, you know, it, it allows that Gen Zennial group to live that way that they want to live, which is, um, you know, maximizing time, uh, spent with things they enjoy and friends. And this is, this is another way to do that. So I think, you know, going back to the original part of the thesis is the time is right for this. Um, and then it's just all about like executing and keeping the customers really happy and, uh, we think Ralph and the team in Berlin are, are going to do it. All right. Well, now, speaking of uh, just the, the 
the Zoomers, the Gen Zers, um, and other uh, emerging groups and demographics and whatnot. What are some of the most important VC trends that you're keeping an eye on? Well, um, so, well, there's, there's, I guess, two ways to, to take this. One is what's just going on in the venture community, which you're seeing the level of fund creation that we haven't seen since like 99, uh, 98, 2000. Um, you're seeing a lot of young people make a lot of money on these exits and starting seed funds. And um, we're seeing, you know, just a lot of company creation. The interesting thing is in 2000, there were um, 10,000 venture and growth firms operating in the United States. By 2004, there were 800 actively investing. And so the question is, are we going to see a, a, a flush uh, of that scale again? I don't know. But you're certainly seeing you know, capital formation at a scale that I haven't seen since the late 90s. Um, the other side of that in terms of... Um, like the trends we're seeing in the market is so one I mentioned, which is, you know, optimizing time. The other is, um, and we've been a big believer that in this, and this is why we have a, you know, designers on staff, but B2B businesses or businesses that are, you know, what we would call product led growth, where the product really drives the adoption of the enterprise are, they need to be designed for that Gen Zennial group because they're, you know, they're used to those, ex those consumer experiences, beautiful, wonderful consumer experiences. And, they want that same experience at work. And so that, you know, what's happening is every business is becoming a consumer business. And then if you go a layer deeper, <laughs> every business is becoming a fintech business. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, once you, once, once you build the product um, more for the consumer than for the enterprise, so it's an enterprise product, you make the consumer happy. How do you then build a business model around your customer that, that aligns customer success with your success. And, and we're seeing, um, you know, companies rather than saying, okay, you owe me a million a year of a SaaS payment. So it's like this one zero decision, you know, most we're seeing a lot of new companies be more transactional. So they're charging along the lines of revenue. They're charging a percentage of revenue. They're charging through payments on the back end. So you're getting software for free and then you're making, you know, your business model makes money off the, off the, um, the, the corresponding payment. So, those are, those are some bigger trends we're seeing in the market. Um, and those aren't just driven by like the Gen Zennial employees. There's, it's also the founders. Uh, this group, I feel like like vis-a-vis -vis or versus Gen X is more worldly. They've seen more and done more than we did at the same age. Um, and um, I think the willingness to step out and start companies is much higher you know, versus going to like an investment banker or consulting firm, which not to knock that because it's amazing training and actually it's a good way to start and then go start a company. But the risk profile is very different. And I think part of that is they've just lived through a few crises and realized like, look, like the market can collapse. I'm going to survive. We'll be okay. You know, why don't we lean forward and start a company? So, you know, and, and or a venture firm going back to the original part of, of your question. So it's just, there's a lot of, it, there's just a lot of sparks and lightning in the system right now. And again, when we were in Berlin, we saw that. Okay. And so you're saying generally you would say there is a higher tolerance for risk among people active out there right now um, than maybe in years past. Yeah. Just at at an that. earlier age also. At an earlier age. Okay. At an earlier yeah. age. And, and like, you know, look, it's like, 
age old question. Are we, are, are we a product of our time? Or are we a product of our, um, our genetics? And, um, you know, the last 10 years have been, uh, you know, thank goodness, like very light on uh, conflict, but economically you've been, um, you know, pretty volatile. And so sure. I think sort of that self-reliance gene has really kicked in, um, in, in the group that's grown, the cohort that's grown up through this. Do you, uh, how has COVID actually affected, affected you guys or the sector in general? Yeah. So, I mean, COVID wasn't, um, like a phase shift or quantum shift. What COVID did was pull forward demand and change. that was going to happen anyway. Okay. It's an accelerator. So, like, yeah. E-commerce increased. That was going to happen anyway. It just pulled it forward. Adoption. I mean, a lot of the adoption we saw was actually like the Gen X and, and, and boomers got on board with what the, the Gen Zennials were doing already. So, you know, it's, it's not a phase shift. It's just, it's a pull forward. And, um, you know, the, the volatility in this market is so much higher now that COVID has been a really good time to just work harder than we've ever worked before, you know, and do things that um, maybe we weren't willing to do because there's an opportunity to break out here. And part of that is like, let's go plant our flag in Berlin during COVID and, you know, take advantage of all the amazing things happening on the continent, Berlin and Germany. And so COVID for us has been exciting. Our portfolio companies, like just given the sectors we're in, have performed really well. There's obviously always luck involved in that. But, um, you know, I think for some people it's been good. I think for others it's been very challenging and difficult. And, you know, we've been fortunate and uh, glad we're coming hopefully on the other end of this thing. But for tech investing, it it's not game changing, except that it just opened people's eyes to what's coming. Fair enough. Now, uh, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that the market is a little bit or the volatility has, of the market has been uh, on on display. Um, but I wanted to ask you if, uh, that you mentioned also there has been an influx in VC capital, um, just f- more funds, more money out there. Um, if that be despite the 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 influx of funds that that it's been is it an easier time than it has been in the past to invest or is it harder? Because it seems like there have been more exits, more successful exits, been more capital um, on the market than in the past, um, and it also least from the outsider's perspective, it seems like maybe the hit rate is even higher on some of these bets. I could be completely wrong, but that's just my my impression of uh, of the news cycles that I've been exposed to. Scott, so you're spot on. What, what I think you're referring to too is a, is a loss ratio is at an all-time low, meaning yeah. the percentage of fund has of write-offs. And why are we seeing that? Well, you know, there's so much capital in the system that companies that probably shouldn't exist continue to get funded. And so, it, you know, and they're even getting funded at markup. So it feels like it feels like everyone's doing well. You've had some big exits, but relative to the capital deployed, you know, if you look at the ratio of exit um, uh, capital deployed over the capital exited, it's it hasn't gone that far out of whack. That's been pretty much in line. Okay. Um, so, you know, we should see more exits, more capital flows in. The thing that um, you know, a lot of my co- my colleagues, my peers, and I are cognizant of is that these paper gains really don't mean anything um, until you get a you know for your LPs until you take a company public or, or sell a company. And so, you know, you can get really excited about 
you know, getting a big fund in and getting markups, but until you actually execute on it, 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 you just have to be careful. Now, the difference between what's going on today versus 2000 is that these are real companies. They have real revenue. Um, and they're not just ideas. Um, so when things do correct, you may see valuations come in. But I think the durability of the companies today is much higher than it was 20 years ago. And so the loss ratios will increase, but I don't think they'll, they'll increase it back to the same rate they were. You know, loss ratios were like 50, 60 percent um, you know, over the last couple of decades. And so you may see it go to 30 percent, but I don't think it's going to go much higher than that. Just, you know, we all get smarter, right? The system, um, you know, the system works in that. The bad investors don't raise more money and the good ones do and the good entrepreneurs get money and they build durable businesses. So, you know, I don't know where this all ends. Um, it's really hard to <laughs> predict markets. Uh, it's hard not to think about it when you're investing and um, think about these valuations. But look, I feel like having been in this business for 20 years, every time we lean into a really great asset, we felt like we were overpaying every time. I mean, it's so rare where you're like, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, this is such a great valuation. I can't believe we're getting this. If that did happen, um, and it's happened to me, I think twice, the companies were not very good companies. So, you know, I don't, it's hard to see where this goes. Like it's gonna, it will always revert back to the mean, but I don't think you're gonna see the same level of crash that we saw in 2000. Now I'm making predictions, I shouldn't. <laughs> But you're not going to see the same. Can't level. help yourself. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't. It's our job. Right. <laughs> it's our exactly. Job. So if we make yeah, 55% of our predictions are right, then we're we're doing well. But I think I think you will see it revert to the mean. I think you'll see valuations come down. But I don't think you're going to see like company destruction at the level that you saw um, in 2000, or for instance, in like financials in 08. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like generally um, that the the companies that are out there, the startups that are out there, um, whether they're good or great, um, it just seems like there's more soundly run companies that understand their product or their market, um, and that can only at least hedge the bets or hedge the losses in the long run. Yeah, think. and the cost base, uh, you know, the, to build these businesses has changed a lot too, right? You're not buying servers. You've got right. you can run it in the cloud. Um, you can you can actually scale down um expenses much faster and so we've we've had scenarios where we needed to make some changes at a company and it was growing 100 percent. we slowed growth to 30 percent, got it profitable you know it was much harder to do those things 15 20 years ago so you know i like where where you're gonna see the you know creative destruction i guess is like what you were talking about earlier in the quick commerce space with with joker and then all of these other competitors, many of which won't survive, it's with that head-to-head -head competition is what's going to get people in trouble. If they don't have the right team, the ability to execute, and a lot of capital around them, that those are the companies that I think are going to struggle. Where, you know, the more the end of one companies, which I'm sure you hear a lot of people talk about, meaning like there's white space in, in a market map and they're doing something different, you know, that, that survivability is based more on how they manage their burn relative to their, their capital stack. So if they can survive and they get the timing, like, okay, maybe they're a little bit early, but they've got enough runway, um, those companies tend to do really well. And that's why you hear a lot of people say, you know, I only invest in N of one companies. Harder to find these days because right. there's so much capital and, and copycats, but it does happen. 
Now, when it comes to your uh, or Activance philosophy or uh, in investing, are there models that you tend to follow or certain strategies? Now, I read that you one thing that you don't like to do is look at previous investors because I guess it would just influence or, uh, your decision one way or the other to invest in a company as opposed to looking at the bottom line. Um, but just what what models or strategies do you do you tend to follow? Yeah, I mean, okay, so good. I, I would I'll pull that in two parts. So one is sort of like how do you manage the emotional aspect of investing and being a human um, that's fallible and going to make mistakes and have biases. And so, you know, when we're thinking about investing in a deal, we don't we don't want to talk about or even know um, if we can help it who's invested, who's coming in around. It's you know how do you make your own decision based on the business, the team, the market. So, you know, that is actually in investing. One of the hardest things to do is pull, you know, the emotion out of these decisions. And, you know, like a lot of people say, okay, I'm making like all the database decisions. Well, the reality is it's really hard to invest solely on data unless you're trading um, based on charts. Uh, but in the private market, it's a lot of opinion. And so you collect all the data you can collect, you look at it, and then ultimately you make an opinion. So, yeah, pulling pulling those factors out that might influence you that really don't matter that much or have less signal is really important part of the decision making. And when we go back to, and the other part of the question is how do you how do you evaluate businesses or what do you look for? And there's um, there's three primary things, and you can change one of them, but you can't change the other two. And so the first is the market, and again, this is coming back to the timing point. You know, we want markets that are growing fifteen plus percent. Um, that could have 20 to 40 year runs. And it's really hard to you know, switch markets. So that, that you're stuck with. The second thing then is team and their ability to execute. Really hard to switch that out. So you're stuck with them. So you need to make sure you've got the right team and you build that right relationship. And that's done, you know, pouring over, you know, plans and models and, and also, you know, pouring wine over dinner and, um, and getting comfortable uh, with each other. And then the third thing that's really important, but you can change it a lot, and we've done that, is business model. And and you know what is a business model you think will work? And one approach that we you know we've we've gotten a lot more flexible around shifting business models. You know, my, I I grew up more in the private equity side of the business, and and there you tend to focus solely on business model, but you realize you know later that um, you can't change business models if you've got a great product. So those are the three primary things. I mean, there's a lot underlying that, but you know, I, I probably made it sound really simple. Um, <laughs> I'm going to start a fund I, tomorrow. I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> maybe we overcomplicate things, um, but it is. It's simple. It's market team and then the business model. And if you hit it right, you get magic. And sure. if you don't, it's a lot of work. So now when you are collecting your data and is doing your research, um, is there ever a um, – I mean, I imagine you have like uh, certain – team of advisors, maybe, well, obviously at Activant, but maybe also beyond that kind of uh, steer you in one direction or other. Um, are there um, times where you feel like it's a, a slam dunk or as close as it can be uh, to a slam dunk to a sure thing? Um, or are there times where you just, you follow your own instinct um, one way or the other to either go against the advice or to to um, go to go against it to invest or go against it to not invest? Um, so this is a really, this is now, now we're getting to the heart of investing. Um, and I, this is a fascinating topic. So I think in hindsight, it's really hard to tell, but 
every time we're about to do a deal in terms of how you feel if it's a slam dunk or not, I don't think I've ever thought anything was a slam dunk. I, I just think it's really hard. And I'm going to get to why it's hard to get that level of conviction. I think you can say on, you know, on, on average or with 80% confidence, I think this is going to be really good. And you can pound the table and investment committee for it because on balance, it, it looks like an amazing opportunity, but a slam dunk. I don't think I've ever had that in my, in my career. And I would worry if someone said this is a slam dunk because you, you like you, you get, you know, it's like if you're playing poker, you get a set of cards and you could have, you know, whatever, a bunch of aces, but you could lose because like things happen. Um, cards turn over differently and the future happens and you may have made the right bet, but you lost because of things that happened that you couldn't predict. Or couldn't so, control. Exactly. So the slam dunk thing is, is um, it's challenging. I think one of my um, mentors, um, Tony Fidel, put this in perspective, which was sort of, I inherently knew it, um, but he, he took me through it as, you know, it's that gut decision versus data-based decision. And there are things, there are jobs where you can actually make almost all data-based decisions. Private growth investing is really hard. And, and I know I, some of my peers and colleagues say that they only invest based on data, but you, you get all the data you can and it's an opinion at the end of the day. It's an opinion because you're predicting the future. And anyone predicting the future can only have an opinion, in my opinion. <laughs> so, sound, sounds legit. Yeah, sounds legit. It sounds good when someone else smart says it, um, um, when Tony said it. So anyway, I think that, yeah, you are making opinions based on data and based on educated guesses. And that's like the magic of the job, because then you get to kick it around and talk about it and and think about what could come, um, which is why like a lot of investors like growth investors and venture investors especially tend to be pretty optimistic. You don't find very many pes pessimistic venture investors that do well. Um, yeah, fair enough. Now, um, but um, with regards to like returns and exits, what what is a, a good return that you, that you might target? Um, or is it just generally speaking that you're looking for a return? Um, is there like a threshold for stakeholders or founders or uh, startups um, that you are, that you, that that you're focused on achieving, um, or is it just an individual on a case by case basis? Does it vary? So we're um, we're absolute return investors, meaning we're trying to drive the highest absolute return um, across the fund. And when I say highest absolute return, I'm not talking like 10, 12, 15, 20, 30 percent. We're talking, um, you know, massively outperforming the market. And so when we underwrite, you know, if it, if a company can't get to at least four to five times our money in a in a base scenario again predicting the future it's just not going to be a fit for us so we do have a really high bar and then that pushes you towards companies that are growing faster in bigger markets um again this is this is hard it's hard to do rarely as a company hit our base case it usually outperforms it or underperforms it um but you know i think on a Portfolio level, it's absolute return. Um, what you're doing though is constructing a bottoms up investment by investment, and each one, if it's not generating minimum four to five x, we're we're not going to be interested in it. Um, so, like, if you're a founder, like, wait a minute, does that mean I have to pay you a lower price? No, like, 
It's what do we believe the business can become in that market um, at a market clearing price, which the funny thing is like, Scott, price, you kind of know where the price is going to come in when you've done this long enough. And if there's a bunch of other firms around it, you're like, okay, I think this is where people are going to bid. Almost always nail it. So, you know, we're, we're essentially price takers um, versus price makers, uh, especially today when there's more capital than great companies. So, so when you get that, when you take that price, what do you predict? And, and we look for the highest absolute return. So the neat thing about growth, the reason I've always loved growth and it's venture growth, whatever you call it, late stage venture, um, you can, you can have loss ratios that look really attractive, like buyout firms, loss ratios, but you still can get those venture like upsides as 10 X's, 20 X's, 30 X's. So Okay. Now you mentioned though you you're more like a, a price taker, temperature taker uh, of the of the current marketplace. Um, you kind of know what people are going to bet. Is there um, have there ever been instances where you've just absolutely fallen in love with the vision of a company or the founders that has made you completely price insensitive? Where you're just basically like, shut up, take my money, all of it. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. I've had conversations where I said, just tell us what you need, and we'll do it. Here's a check. And that's happened multiple times. And look, like I mean, that pretty much happened at Bolt, Deliver, Better, like a, a few of our portfolio companies. The smart entrepreneur, though, when you say that, it, you know, if they, they're not going to put a, if they put an absurd number down, um, it, you would question, you know, then it becomes a, a question of judgment because they're, they've got to now take that number and, and produce multiples of it. And it changes the, you know, the pressure on the business and the dynamic of the business. So, you know, generally when you put it, that question to a founder, it's, first of all, it's shocking because very few people will even ask them that, but, um, you learn a lot. There's a lot of information to be gained by, by finding out where they think it should come out. So it, it does happen a lot. Um, is, you know, when you, when you do the work in a sector, you meet with all the other competitors um, which is effectively what we did when we invested in Joker, which is in, you know, based in Berlin. Um, we knew we had the one and it, it's like, look, this market's so big, they can win so big, you know, what's going to work for you all. And they didn't want to go crazy either. They're like, let's just, let's, let's, let's get a good price. Let's raise the right amount of money. And then we're just going to keep stepping it up as we perform. All right. Now, um, when, when you do actually come on board and invest in a company, um, what, how active is the role that Activant takes in in the the overall operations of a company? I mean, obviously, if the company's doing well and performing well, meeting expectations, it's probably like a golden situation where you don't have to do anything. But if they're you know, underperforming, uh, missing targets, um, do you have a tendency to become more involved, offer guidance, and then step back again? Or do you want to take a really more hands-on approach? Because you mentioned the only really thing that you can influence is the business model. I guess the team as well, but you'd probably have a mutiny on your hands. Yep. Um, so yeah, how, how, how active is your role? Yeah, so we, we, we take... It's more of like a late stage private equity approach to working with our company. So it's a support function. We are a support function. Investment firms cannot run the businesses themselves. We're not equipped to do that. But in that support function, we do a lot. And we've had cases where we've jumped in and taken over the finance function because there wasn't a CFO and that's very easy for us to do. And we 
would raise additional capital um, based on models we built and help the team connect the business model, operating model to the financial plan. Um, we've um, st- we've stepped in and done some pretty incredible things. At one company, um, at Better, for instance, we actually had an office in their office and phenomenal company, phenomenal founder. They were growing so fast. He just was waving in all the help he could get. They grew, I think, six times uh, revenue, grew revenue six times last year. Wow. So a company that was doing performing incredibly well was probably the most um, uh, laborious, uh, the, the company that you had the most active role in. Yeah. Yeah. Because wow. it, you know, as a, when our time when companies are doing well, our time is generally better spe- better spent making that making sure that company instead of being a twenty billion dollar company can be a thirty or forty billion dollar company, than taking something that's going to be a couple hundred million to like two hundred to two hundred and twenty. Um, and again, that's going back to for LPs. But when things get hard, you know, we we also put our shoulder into it as best we can. And again, it's a support function for the founder. Like we just do whatever we need to do to help them. And it, it, it spans from product marketing, recruiting, sales, sales introductions. Um, and, you know, having that support in our sort of mid-stage uh, is differentiating. Um, it's also a lot of fun. The team, the team loves just working with um, the founders and teams um, when it's appropriate. But again, we're minority investors, so we're, we're not buying a majority. And so, like, to, to add, when a CEO asks you for some support and some function, like you have to be so good to get that um, relationship to a place where you can actually provide support. The bar is a lot higher versus a private equity firm that just buys a business and throws a person in there, um, which is good. So I I feel like when we're working with someone, we're, you know, at least in the founder's mind, we're adding value and, um, you know, and then there's times to pull out also and, and, and sort of let the, let the dust settle. Now, uh, your portfolio, I believe you have 34, 35 companies at present, um, roundabout. R- round, that sounds about right. I should know that number, but I don't, Scott. <laughs> I did not mean to put you on the spot. I could no. have been better prepared, but here we are. Um, generally speaking, I wanted to ask you, um, what would you say are like some of the, the, the bigger, maybe not misses in the portfolio, but things where you were maybe expecting a little bit more, things that you thought would have played out differently? Uh, we definitely have a few of those. Um, they're, they're still doing well. So, uh, you know, a unique thing about our portfolio is we've yet, we've, um, our loss ratio is zero. So, okay. Um, and that speaks to the support function we provide when things have gotten hard. We've, we've worked out um, with management teams to get good outcomes um, mm-hmm. for both for them and for us. But yeah, like I don't want to name specific companies, but we have had some that have just been long, hard roads. And you always learn so much more from those than you do from your winners because when the when the things are doing well, going well, you're just like, wow, I'm so smart. I'm really good at this business. And then when they go poorly, it, it just exposes all of the poor decision making, all of the emotion that happens when you invest um, and the series of decisions that happen. You know, like any bad decision, it starts with one step. So, yes, we have this, Scott, for sure. Um, we've been managing them out really well, I think. Uh, and the team and I learn a lot more from those than the, than the ones at RIP. 
I can imagine you mentioned kind of like poker a little bit before. It's uh, yeah. like so the poker adage, like you will learn more or you remember, you never forget a, a big hand, a big pot that you lost. You forget all the ones that you won, but yep. the big ones that you lose, you just, you know, everything that happened. And everything. You just break but that's down. how, that's the learning mechanism, right? right? That's how you make sure like, okay, I'm not going to do that again. And sometimes it's just plain luck, really. Yeah. Okay. And there's a lot of that in this business. Well, uh, let's focus on the positives then. What were some of the biggest hits? Some of the, the ones where you're just like, where, you know, it's like, wow, I'm a genius. <laughs> uh, or, we've got oh a lot of, I mean, look, we're very lucky and fortunate. We've got a lot of those. So, you know, and um, Fund 3, Bolt Deliver, Better, or, or just absolutely knocking it out of the park. I have no words to describe their performance. Um, and Fund 4, um, Cardless Eco, Hydro. Uh, same thing, just absolutely knocking it out of the park. And it's super fun to watch. Um, it's really fun when you build that relationship with the founder that it's sometimes hard. It, it, you end up becoming friends. And um, I, love, I love it when our friends become successful. It's just, it's just, and their visions turn into reality and it's fun to watch. And sometimes it's hard because we're always watching from a distance. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, and look, the market's been good to us too. So when the market isn't good, we'll see what happens. That's when that's when it's going to get really interesting. I can imagine. So now I have a couple of more questions uh, before I let you get out of here. Um, more about the portfolio and the companies therein. Um, so generally speaking, I think it's fair uh, to say that there's a very heavy e-commerce backend logistics bent to the companies. Um, you have a new store, which is an omni-channel store solution provider. You have Deliver that you'd mentioned, Bolt as well. Um, and then even like something like Joker has to do, you know, with uh, the logistics and the execution of things. Um, it just seems that that is a primary factor in uh, a fair, maybe not the majority, but a fair amount of the companies you invest in. Is that something that came about organically? Did you see that as something that was an under-targeted sector, undervalued perhaps, maybe because of the back end, because it was tech heavy? Um, that yeah. It so, didn't, yeah. Yeah. So I, um, to real quick, I, um, I, when I started um, my career, I was at Robertson Stevens in San Francisco, and I worked with all of the e-com and internet companies. And took many of them public that didn't survive, but I knew back then that the internet would change the way we consume goods and services, um, and it also changed the way we conduct finance. So it's it's commerce and, and fintech are our big focus areas. And what we did was made. I mean, we're making a hundred year bet on this sector. Remember, go back to the three things you bet on: its sector, team, and business model. Well, as a firm, like you know, what sector do we know and what sector is going to grow, what compound and rate at 15 plus percent for as long as I'm alive. And it's, it's this commerce and fintech sectors. And, you know, it's, it started from a fascination with the internet and it's turned into reality for us today, um, investing in these companies. And I, like, I, you know, our view is that it's, it's still early days. Um, and a lot of things, you know, we're only trying the things that we tried and failed at in 2000. We haven't really pushed the envelope on what what what's potential, and I. I really appreciate you taking the time. It was a lot of fun talking to you, um, and uh, hopefully next time you're in Berlin, I won't be on oh, vacation. We're definitely going to get together in person, hundred yep. percent. I can't wait. Well, look, thanks <laughs> a lot, Steve. All the best. Take to care. You. All right. Bye. Be well. Bye.